This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode has been carefully curated from the Top of Mind archive, and there's a lot to choose from. We've been going in-depth with guests on the air every weekday since 2015, searching for new perspectives and ideas. I hope what you hear today makes you think about your world a little differently and sparks satisfying new conversations with the people in your life. Let's dive in. I'm Julie Rose. Good to have you with us for Top of Mind. The last symphony Beethoven completed before his death was this, his ninth. Beethoven's Ninth concludes with the famous Ode to Joy, as performed here by the London Symphony Orchestra. When he died, Beethoven was working on a Tenth Symphony, but he hadn't gotten very far. There have been numerous attempts to finish his Tenth. Those have had limited success. Now, with the help of artificial intelligence, a group of musicologists and computer scientists have made a new attempt. Mark Gotham is a professor of music theory at TU Dortmund University in Germany. He worked on this artificial intelligence project to complete the 10th symphony, and he's with me now. Welcome. Thank you very much, Julie. It's great to be here. How finished was Beethoven's 10th when he died? How far had he gotten? Uh, as you say, you're quite right. Very uh, not far at all, would be uh, fair to say. So um, it's been one of those... Um, what could have been uh, works for scholars and composers and and um, and the, the sort of cultural imagination ever since. There are a lot of pieces like um, Mahler's Tenth, which are much more complete. You know, there's a whole movement with orchestration, and there's a really clear sense of what's sort of supposed to be happen. If you'll uh, if you'll uh, permit that phrase, with the Tenth, it's really not like that. There's much more fragmentary evidence, much more sketchy um, material to go on. And where there is material, it's not equally distributed across what might have been the final work. So um, Barry Cooper, for instance, in the 1980s, personally found some more sketches, which was a good boost, um, and then decided that he had enough to go on for something like a sort of first or second, first and or second movement, um, but concluded that there wasn't really enough to continue with the rest of the, um, the symphony in the traditional scholarly way where you read the sketches which uh, survive and you come up with a plan for how to complete to sort of fill in the gaps if you like mm. in a way that is consistent with what Beethoven might have done. What actually is there then of of the 10th from Beethoven? You've got handwritten what does he have like a couple of lines? Does he have some yeah. sort of musical themes? <laughs> yeah no these are great questions. So um, it, all sorts of different things and that's part of the the confusion. Sometimes you get a really clear fully written out melody and that's obviously wonderful you get a really clear sense of how this thing is supposed to begin at least or what the sort of main main material is and sometimes you just get a couple of chords or you know a few notes or even most intriguingly perhaps some words so some of the sketches that Beethoven wrote are in text and not in music um, and in that case perhaps even more than in some other cases um, it's uh there's, it's so underdetermined, right? There's so many different ways in which you could realize um, the ideas that are set out in, in words. So, so really all kinds of different things. There's nothing that's substantial, really. There's nothing that's, you know, um, over a long period of time for full orchestra or anything like that. So it's all small scale, hmm. um, but it's small scale in different ways and to greater and lesser degrees. So for someone like yourself who knows Beethoven's work um, completely and intimately, when you look at the sketches that he left behind, these little fragmentary notes of the 10th uh, symphony he was working on. I mean, are there certain things that are quite obvious to you that he intended to do? Um, you know, is, is he, was he predictable enough <laughs> that, that, that the 10th was probably going to be similar to, I don't know, the 9th or the 5th or whatever, right? So to answer the last part of that, absolutely not. If there's anything you could say about Beethoven's late style is that all bets are off, really. Um, so, uh, you know, for one, for one of the things, one of the tasks that we try to, to, to work on here is to, to find relevant music and, and sort of models that you might be able to sort of emulate. So, for instance, um, there's a very clear scherzo theme, uh, which means a three-time sort of 
relatively fast dance-like material. Um, it's, it seems pretty clear that that was a melody by Beethoven intended for this particular movement in this particular symphony. So that's a really exciting um, page of music to have. But, you know, the kind of scherzos that he was writing at the beginning of his life, maybe you could get more of a sense that, um, okay, here's the sort of usual pattern. Here's what Haydn did. Here's what other people were doing at the time. Here are the kind of directions he might take. Um, and uh, it's already difficult enough at that stage to sort of second guess what he might have done. But when you get to the late style Beethoven, it's concomitantly much harder. There are many more possibilities. Different kind of formal ideas um, bleed into each other. Um, it really all bets are off, really. So it's a, it's a very formidable challenge. And so what was the thinking um, that in terms of including artificial intelligence? What, what were you and the others you worked with on this team thinking that AI could bring to this task that human experts like yourself were not capable of doing? Well, I think that's, that's a great question. And I think that is really the question for all of us to, um, to lock horns with now. Uh, you know, what, what are the positive ways that we can harness AI, which is so ubiquitous in our lives now, to sort of extend what we can do in a way that we're content with and sort of have ownership over that, um, that interaction? Uh, to answer more specifically in this case, um, you could think of it as just getting us enough material to go back to that first traditional approach. Um, so you could think of Walter Wetzela, who's the primary composer on this project, as being the Barry Cooper here, and the computational side being a way of getting him enough material to, to work with. Um, and there's some truth to that. That's, that's in, a, in a way, that's kind of um, what's going on. It's just about producing more material so that you can actually have any kind of guidance for this um, completion task. In practice, we came up with um, more of an iterative and interactive uh, pattern, which I think is is interesting and worth exploring and talking about, where um, there are musical questions to be asked at every stage. So you don't just get, you don't just inherit a particular set of sketches or um, um, material to work with. There is more of a dialogue. You know, we can say, okay, we need more material on the subject of a scherzo, say, like we were talking about before, or a fugue, which is another kind of musical style or genre that... Um, is is in, in involved in this work. So, and if so I could can, just if I could just interject then for a moment okay, um, yeah. to and kind of uh, we should maybe explain how artificial intelligence works in a situation well, like this. Well, it always it always has to learn somehow. You have to feed it lots and lots of, in this case, music uh, from Beethoven, and it sounds like from lots of other uh, other composers. You feed it a lot of music so that it kind of learns w what a Beethoven symphony looks like and sounds like and yeah you're absolutely right yeah so um, and you're absolutely right that um it has to learn from existing examples and it's not always totally clear um what what rules it's learning and how it's um making its decisions and so on but we do have a hand in in how it um uh how it works and what um particularly what constitutes a relevant example um so you choose which pieces to train it on and that gives you certain possibilities that are, you know, that are just never available to the human mind, which is, for instance, to forget, to not know all the music that's come about since Beethoven. Um, so if we're trying to sort of inhabit a particular time in history, you know, if we're trying to be in the, the, the headspace of a composer in 1827, we can, we can do that in a way more effectively than people today uh, you know, humans can ever do because we know so much about what, what came next. Um, and you know, oh, I see. So, so, so you needed a completely naive Beethoven expert, and that's what the artificial intelligence could do. Because you, as long as you don't feed it anything that came after Beethoven, it, it it's much closer, much more able to to sort of come up with something that Beethoven might have come up with based on what he had experienced before he died. That's right. And all the, all the details of this are, are really interesting musical questions, I think. You know, do we only want to learn on music that came before Beethoven? Or if you're trying to um, build something that, the, you know, the sort of centre, the kind of normal, quote unquote, uh, path for which is something around there, around 1827, do you want that to be the centre of your corpus? So do you want there to be music from a bit later and a bit earlier, but mostly around that time? Uh, and like I say, there are these more specific musical questions. So once you have a more specific kind of musical task in mind, then you can train on only music that you deem relevant to that particular task. So it's not just 
all Beethoven, but all Beethoven's fugues, say, or all Beethoven's uh, last movements of his symphonies or the string quartets or, or whatever it is. Um, and uh, that that is, again, you know, one of those cases where you have to make a musical decision before you can do any of the computation. Let's go ahead and listen to then uh, a bit of the final result. This is the uh, the completion of Beethoven's 10th symphony by this group you worked on that uh, employed artificial intelligence. So, Mark Gotham, we're hearing um, the dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, you know, this repeating pattern. Is that something that Beethoven had already written, or is that something that the AI came up with? Yeah, so this this tune, the beginning of this tune, is definitely by Beethoven, and um, notwithstanding a few kind of very nerdy details that we pour over, um, it really is Beethoven's melody for this movement. Um, so that that was a very, very exciting piece of paper to to behold. Um, and to to learn from and to work with and then the task is um, okay what next you know you get a few seconds from that and you know that theme is likely to come back at some point but when and what happens in between times and how are we going to harmonize this theme so it's it's not just violins playing that tune but there are other instruments playing harmonies that go with it and um, in a wider sense you know how is all of this going to be mapped onto an orchestra with you know 70 people all of which with a role uh, to play. Uh, so, yeah, you get a starting point in this case, and then you have to run with it. How convincing is this uh, composition? In, in the sense, I mean, so there are so many ways of, of thinking about that. And I think, um, uh, you know, it's for everyone to decide how Beethovenian they think it is and how uh, good or otherwise they think it is. You know, that's a very complicated word to use, of course. Um, but I, I mean, I think it's a really, uh, a really credible and really sort of respectable uh, job and very promising for these, these wider questions that we're talking about, you know, the future development of these possibilities. So do you think it's as, as, as good as the ninth? That's a big question. Do you think it's as good as Cooper's completion of the, the other parts of the 10th? That's another que- uh, sort of question you might ask in this context. Do you think it's um, as good as other artificially uh, AI generated musical material, you know, in a wider sense, not just in a way of uh, emulating Beethoven, but free compositional material. What do you think? I think it's, uh, I don't think it's uh, Beethoven's Ninth. I think that that would be, that's a very, very high bar to aim for. Um, But I think it it is a good, there's definitely something of Beethoven in this material. And um, it, you know, really is uh, human computer interaction with material that's either from Beethoven or from the machine that's learned on Beethoven. So I think it's uh, it's exciting, yeah. And and what exactly did the artificial intelligence produce? Did it produce just a melody for all four movements? Uh, did it actually produce the orchestration for the symphony as well? Yes. So um, yes, to all of the above. Yeah. So we said at different tasks, and um, again, you have musical decisions in how you build what's called these sort of architectures, if you like, for the uh, the computation that's going to do that. Um, and here again, yeah, so you have to sort of design the task for the computer. You don't just press a button and get the whole symphony out the other end. Um, in one case, for instance, we have um, a particular setup for extending melodies. Okay, so you give it a short melody, and what you wanted to give you back is the same melody with a bit more on the end, so a little extension to what goes in. And of course, that can be iterative, so you're considering it can loop back and uh, learn from um the longer melody now to uh, produce an even longer one. So that's, excuse me, that's one particular task and one kind of computational setup goes into just doing that, only that. Then a completely separate um, task is um, given over to uh, harmonizing it. So then you've got a, a melody, which can be long or short, it doesn't really matter. And your task is for the computer to give you back a suggested harmonization. So what chords should go with this melody, for instance, or what contrapuntal line should go with this melody. And then a whole third separate um, part is given over to um, just setting it out for orchestra. So given this material, which instruments are going to play these particular notes at any one point? And so we had, yeah, like I say, specific, um, different and 
different computational architectures to approach each of these different tasks. And I should also say to, to stitch it together. Uh, so there's a lot of stitching that goes on with the, the sort of manual part where decisions are made and they're combined and so on. And so were but you were, were you as, as, as humans then on this team um, reviewing what the AI was spitting out and saying, yeah, I like this or no, go try this again. Uh, you know, g- give me something different. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And, and Walter Metzler is the lead on this as the primary composer of the task. But yes, absolutely. That's that's the idea um, that the, the computer produces possibilities. It produces in a way we go from having too few sketches from Beethoven to having way too many sketches from the computer because, you know, the computer um, doesn't care whether it produces one example or a thousand examples. Um, and then then the task can be to try and kind of find the, the, the gold among the, uh, you know, the, the really the one that's really that's really great and really kind of fits the um the moment um from all of these different possibilities can you describe I for us the, can you describe for us mark gotham uh something that the ai the artificial intelligence came up with that that really surprised you in the harmonization task for instance you know there's a lot of different ways in which you can harmonize the same melodies is of course uh, a key part of what um jazz music musicians are doing when they um uh, play with a, a jazz standard and do different things with it, rework it in different ways. It's also a key part of what composers like Bach were doing when they would take the same hymn tune and harmonize them in different ways. And it's it's really, it's true throughout a wide, wide range of uh, musical repertoires and styles. So there's, no, there's not a single correct answer. There's not a single correct way to harmonize any tune at any moment. There are conventions and there are norms. And that, of course, is what the, the computer is learning. Um, and then, you know, most of the most of the um, versions that it provides back are either, you know, plausible or less plausible and, you know, better or worse, um, but relatively kind of predictable. You sort of know roughly what you're going to get and you, you, you broadly get it. Um, and then just occasionally it comes up with an idea which is a little bit out of the box and you think, oh, actually, that's that's great. I really like that. Maybe not the first time that we hear this tune, but when it comes back, that might be a nice way of adding a little something extra, a little something different. Um, to the way that you can see this particular tune. So I, I've been thinking of a particular moment with a particular melody where um, I had I had exactly what you described, that kind of, oh, wow, moment. Mark Gotham is a professor of music theory at TU Dortmund University in Germany. He worked on this project using artificial intelligence to complete Beethoven's unfinished 10th symphony. Thank you very much for your time today, Professor. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. We've collected some of our favorite interviews from past years. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in to Top of Mind. It's so good to have you with us today. I'm Julie Rose. There's a kind of peanut butter food supplement thing called Plumpy Nut that has been distributed for decades in impoverished countries, and it's used to treat malnutrition. But it's not designed for babies, and the problem with that is that being malnourished during those first years of life can permanently stunt a child's physical and neurological development. We're talking here about the difference between preventing malnutrition and treating it once it's already set in. UC Davis Emeritus Nutrition Professor Catherine Dewey is on the line to talk about her work on the prevention side of the malnutrition issue. Professor Dewey, hello. Thanks for taking time today. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you. Where in the world are infants at high risk for malnutrition today? Well, there are children at risk in uh, most of the lower and middle income countries in the world, and even in some higher income countries in groups with greater inequality. Uh, And the problem is particularly um, large in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, where stunted growth is very prevalent. What are some of the things that drive this problem? Is it just a lack of food in general, like famine, hunger, or is it more about poor quality food? Well, it's some of both, but uh, poor quality food is probably the larger driver in, in most populations, except under emergency circumstances. Uh, and it, it, the problem with stunted growth in particular is that it is a multifactorial problem. So many things contribute 
to stunted growth and stunted development. Nutrition is certainly one of them and a very important one, but it isn't the only part of the story. Can you expand on what you mean by stunted growth? Are we literally talking about kids that are shorter than they ought to be? Yeah, technically that is the definition of of stunted growth. We define it according to a cutoff of being less than two standard deviations below the standard from the World Health Organization for well-nourished children. Uh, But stunted growth is really a marker of a generally deprived environment that also leads to stunted development and other adverse consequences. So just being short um, for your age may or may not be a serious impediment, but the things that go along with it are very um, detrimental. What are those things? Well, we know that there's a strong relationship to uh, impaired ability to learn later in life, to uh, lower achievement in school, and as a result, it can lead to a reduction in what we call human capital, meaning the ability of a population to actually fulfill its potential and be productive. Um, so that's, that's one of the consequences, um, but there are also many direct health related consequences. So malnutrition is related to a large proportion of child deaths in children under five um, because being malnourished and not just in, in size, but in terms of the nutrients that you're lacking contributes to a greater incidence and severity of different types of infection. Is stunted growth, by the time you're measuring it, is it, is it generally irreversible? Well, that's a very good question, and it's debated quite a lot. Um, We do know that on the average, if children reach two years of age and they're stunted, um, on average, there isn't a lot of recovery after that age. The deficit in height after age two seems to persist all the way through in terms of being shorter than average into adulthood. Mm -hmm. And is the same true for the other deficits that you described? Well, development is something that um, encompasses many domains, and some of those are established quite early in life, although they're built upon after that. Um, And so brain growth and brain development in the first two years is absolutely critical. Uh, And some would argue that some of the deficits in development that occur then may actually be permanent. Mm. But there's also an opportunity for continued brain development and growth, and even some recovery um, through, you know, the years after age two. So, so there is malleability depending on the environment. So what has been difficult about um, addressing malnutrition in those first two years of life? Because as I mentioned, for, I mean, for 30 years now, there have been dietary supplements like Plumpy Nut that have been available in the developing world. That's right. And, and Plumpy Nut is designed for treating severe acute malnutrition, as we call it, which means children who are emaciated um, and have reached the point where they're at very high risk of death. Um, and we really would like to prevent them from getting there in the mm-hmm. first place. But to do that, we do need to start very early in life. The, the studies that we've just published are um, ones that used a preventive type of supplement, much, much smaller quantity than Plumpy Nut, to um, enhance the nutrient quality of a diet starting at six months of age, so mm-hmm. during infancy, and then in the, most of the trials going until 18 or 24 months of age. What, describe for us, just, um, just first of all, what, what's in Plumpy Nut, and you know, how does that compare to what was in your supplement that you tested? Right. So Plumpy Nut generally includes um, peanut butter, although it's not essential, actually. You can use other legumes um, and even other types of foods. But an essential part is the oil. So there's always going to be a pretty high proportion of oil because it makes the product resistant to spoilage when it's kept at room temperature, and it makes the nutrients better protected. Um, And so then usually there's milk powder and uh, vitamins and minerals. And those are the key ingredients. And, and as I said, it's a large quantity, so it's more than 500 calories a day. And for a baby, that's way too much because mm-hmm. their 
total needs are only a little bit more than that. And if they're breastfed, we want them to continue to get that breast milk and other types of foods as well. So the products that we developed and tested are what we call small quantity lipid-based nutrient supplements. It's part of the family of lipid-based supplements, but it's only about four teaspoons a day or about 100 calories or so. And that means that there's room in the diet for breast milk and other nutritious foods as they might be available to the household. Um, and how, how is it fed to a baby of six months who you know, isn't maybe eating solid foods at that point? Right. So normally, six months is about when infants are recommended to be given what we call complementary foods, so foods that are in addition to breast milk. And usually they are semi-soft or soft. And so this product is soft. It's a paste, and it can be eaten mixed with other foods like porridge, um, or it can be eaten by itself. It's it's pretty tasty all by itself. It is. Okay. So like a baby might want to gum it or something. Oh, yeah, they, they really do like it, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not a problem. Now, if, if, if breastfeeding is already happen, happening for a child, what, why would they be experiencing malnutrition? Well, one of the things that people need to keep in mind is that um, after about six months, breast milk by itself is no longer providing enough of certain nutrients. And the ones that I would highlight in particular are iron and zinc. Uh, So babies were built to um, have other foods in their diet after about that age, and they do need those other foods for those key nutrients. Um, So we need sources that provide those that are very rich in the key nutrients that breast milk doesn't have much of, um, while they're still getting breast milk for a very large proportion of their calories and the good quality fat and very high quality protein that breast milk provides. I see. So so these four teaspoons would really be, it's kind of like taking their vitamins. <laughs> like they could chew some gummy vitamins or they're going to get this instead, which is um, going to also give them a few of the other uh, things plus some calories. Yeah. What's important to note is that it's it actually goes pretty far beyond a vitamin pill because there are certain nutrients that are very hard to pack into a vitamin pill, such Mm. as the larger minerals like calcium and potassium and magnesium. They're kind of bulky, so they don't fit into most pills. And more importantly, these supplements have what we call essential fatty acids. So the building blocks for most people are familiar with omega-3 fatty acids. The end product of that chain is DHA, which we find in fish and other types of seafood. But the precursor to that is an essential fatty acid called alpha-linolenic acid, and that is present in pretty large quantities in the supplements that we're talking about. And it's designed to be eaten every day for a baby starting at six months? That's the way most of the trials tested it. And so, yes, it's designed that way um, to provide a consistent source of of those vitamins and minerals every day. Now, what the babies actually did in the trials was variable. Some of them ate it, you know, four times a week or some of them even less than that. And um, despite some variability in adherence, we found quite positive effects in, um, in the trials that we were looking at. Describe those effects, if you would, please. Professor. Right. So we were able to put together data from 14 different trials around the world that contributed their, their raw data to us. So this was not just their averages, but the actual individual data. We looked at um, growth, development, Uh, things like iron status, vitamin A status, and anemia. Um, And in a separate set of analyses, we had looked at mortality. We saw benefits across all four of those domains. So we had a reduction in mortality of 27% between 6 and 24 months, which is very large. Mm. We found large reductions in um, iron deficiency anemia. We also found reductions in stunted growth and in what we call wasting, which is being too thin uh, for your height, and in impaired development. 
And this is the first time that we know of that uh, a t- an intervention for children has resulted in positive effects across all of those four different uh, domains. Why? This has been a problem for a long time. Ha- has nobody ever attempted to solve it, address it, or, ha- or has it been, you know, they've used the wrong thing <laughs> to try to address it? <laughs> well, good question. There have been many attempts over the years, and I think one... Um, problem with some studies is that they were providing too much food to children under two. So if you overshoot the amount of calories that you're providing, let's say in a fortified cereal or something like that, and if the children don't eat it all because it's too much, they won't get the full dose of all of the vitamins and minerals that are present Mm. in that fortified product. Mm. And so they're going to miss out on those benefits. Um, and there's also quite a lot of sharing when you give a fortified cereal legume blend, for example, other members of the household eat it, etc. With these sachets, they're really quite clearly defined as just for the baby and just the right amount that the baby can eat all of it every day. And so we think that's part of why uh, we saw these effects. But also we have a more complete uh, array of all of the nutrients that might be needed for these outcomes than has been available in most of the other products that have been tested over the years. Interesting. So you were able to dial in, pack as much stuff as you could, a lot of all the key stuff into a very small amount. It's interesting that you had to uh, sort of package it and make it very clear that this wasn't for the adults in the household. <laughs> so that um, because, uh, yeah, I mean, food, uh, food insecurity is a, a problem for the entire household, I would assume, if it's a problem for the baby. Yes, that's right. And in food insecure households, there's uh, always going to be the issue of the, where the high quality foods, if they can afford them, who gets to eat those? Mm. And in, in many populations, it's going to be the adult male who has the highest quality food available. Let's say there's meat or something like that. It's very rarely going to be the baby who receives those foods. Or the nursing mother. I mean, are you focusing at all on, on making sure that the mother has enough nutrition to be able to you know, fully breastfeed the child? Right. And so one thing I can mention is that we also have a very similar type of product for pregnant and lactating women. And in several of the trials that were conducted included giving that to the women during pregnancy in the first six months postpartum. Um, and we're currently uh, starting up a, a new analysis, again, collecting the data from all the trials that have used the version that's for pregnant and lactating women so we can look at that, the pooled effect across all of them at the same time. Professor Dewey, have you been involved with the distribution and education efforts uh, of, of these um, supplements like on the ground? Have you worked with any of the recipients themselves? Can you tell us about those interactions? Oh, yeah, sure. I've been uh, personally involved with uh, four of the trials that we included out of, out of the 14. Uh, and uh, I'll mention one in particular. It was in Bangladesh. And this one was implemented within an actual existing program that included community health workers and village health volunteers that would go out to the homes of the women in the communities. We had about 4,000 mother-infant pairs in the study, and so the community health workers would deliver the supplements once a month to each household, and also the other services that they normally provided, like education and counseling around nutrition and and, uh, water sanitation and hygiene. And the mothers who received it were, were very appreciative of something that they felt would help them to um, enhance the health and development of their children. They recognized that they really couldn't afford the more high-quality foods on a regular basis, and they were very uh, grateful that this was being provided um, and they reported, you know, some interesting reactions among the children. They reported that they seemed more active and more engaged and just had brighter skin. There were a lot of mm. anecdotal reports that they gave us that um, they perceived to be um, differences. Uh, and the community health workers themselves were actually quite uh, happy to have something to give out because they recognized that with education alone, they might not be able to have as much of an impact as they would have liked. Mm. 
I can't imagine being a mother with limited resources in a situation like that and feeling like the best you can do for your child isn't enough to see them suffer, but then to have an opportunity like this where, you know, you can provide for your child what they need. Right. And, you know, one of the other things, it's not always mentioned, but women's time is a very valuable commodity. And when they have to prepare a very complicated recipe every day, that cooking or porridge and adding, you know, ground up vegetables and and other things to it, Mm. um, that requires their time and fuel and other things. And so the convenience of having something that's quite complete that they can add um, to whatever they have available was was something that they also appreciated. It's not to say that they wouldn't still be giving those other nutritious foods. We, we strongly encourage that they continue to provide fruits and vegetables and whatever animal source foods that they could afford. Um, but this provided them with something that was a time saver in addition to um, facilitating health. Catherine Dewey is a distinguished emeritus nutrition professor at UC Davis. She consults with the World Health Organization, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, many other global nonprofits tackling nutrition and hunger. Professor Dewey, thanks a lot for your time today. Well, thank you. It was a great pleasure. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. We've collected some of our favorite interviews from past years. Thanks for listening. are listening to Top of Mind. It's great to have you with us. I'm Ciara Hewlett. In the U.S., we often treat the aftermath of domestic violence and abuse with hotlines and shelters for victims. We don't do much to stop the abuse before it happens. But what if there was a helpline for the abusers? A call center in Britain is designed to give guidance to perpetrators of abuse. It's called Respect, and journalist Rachel Louise Snyder listened in on some calls there and recently wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times about her experience. Rachel Louise Snyder is also author of the book No Visible Bruises, What We Don't Know About Domestic Violence Can Kill Us, and she joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. What surprised you about what you heard on the helpline? Gosh, a number of things. But I I think the most important thing was just uh, how vulnerable they sounded. Um, It was nearly all men, although there were some women. And in one case, there was a parent calling in for her child who um, her, you know, older child who was the victim of domestic violence and lived overseas. Um, they all, because it's, it's an anonymous line, they don't have to give any identifying information. There really wasn't much of an impetus for them to lie, I felt like. And so I was really surprised to hear them calling up crying. And um, many of them were very soft spoken. It was like they were lost and confused as to how they had gotten to you know, the situation where they say, for example, they came home to an empty house because their family, the rest of their family had fled to shelter. Mm. Um, there were a number of calls like that. And they uh, they sounded confused. They knew that something sort of in the legal realm or the legal system was happening, but they didn't know what that meant for them. And most of them were really scared about whether or not they'd get to see their kids again. Did many of them not see themselves as as the the villain in in the situation? Yeah, then? you know, that's a really interesting question because I think, you know, some of these calls, I listened in on a couple of calls that were more than an hour long. And um, in the beginning, they'll say things like, you know, they'll minimize whatever they, their part of it was, or they'll say, you know, I mean, I know I've gotten angry a few times, but, right, there's always that sort of clarifying, like, but, um. And so the advisors on who are on the line are trained to kind of slowly bring them around to see their part in it and to understand that, um, that using violence is a choice. And they'll say that outright, like every call I listen to, they'll say, they'll say at some point, so you understand now that violence is a choice or that your violence is a choice or that you contributed to this. And they'll, most of the time, 
I heard them say, yeah, yeah, I see that now, or yeah, yeah, I'm, I, I can understand that now. And, you know, I don't think it's a forever, it's not like they're going to get off the phone and never be violent again, or never be, you know, raging again, but it's, it's like a, it's like an opening, you know, that they were able to realize that they were the problem that, and that they have a choice in this, in these situations and not to let their emotions get the best of them. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we talk about, you know, women are always accused even today, you know, we're just that women are accused of being overly emotional. And I just am like, but who is perpetrating violence predominantly around the world? Like it's, it's not women. That's not to say that women can't be violent. And certainly there were a couple of women who called up and believed that they were the primary aggressor in their relationships and they were seeking help. But, uh, but for the most part, you know, it's men who are acting out. It's men who are doing mass shootings. It's men who are, you know, killing their, their intimate spouses and, or their children in, remarkably higher numbers than women there you have a lot of quotes in your new new york times article um things like at the end of the day i i don't want to hit my children i don't want to hit anybody which is part of the the title of your article and and other people saying another person said i shouldn't be hurting this many people and sounding bewildered that this shouldn't life shouldn't be this hard um Mm -hmm. so do you think that do you think this is representative? Like, it sounds like a lot of these callers, you know, they 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 don't want to be this way. Um, do you think that's that that it's just because these are the people who are actually calling, are the people who want to change and and are start, starting to see there's a problem, or do you think that this is representative a lot of a lot of abusers that they that they don't want to be abusive and it's just they their emotions get the best of them in the moment. Yeah, they don't have, they don't have sort of alternative methods or therapies for dealing with their emotions. You know, that's a, that's a difficult question to answer because, um, you know, I quote someone in the piece is saying, someone who works with abusers saying, you know, I've never met a happy abuser. I've never met somebody who is perpetrating violence, who is happy. And I think that's very, very true. Um, For those who want to change, I think the key to getting that desire to change is realizing that there's something in it for them, realizing that their life can actually improve in a number of different ways. You know, in my book, I have, I have the whole middle section is divided into three sections and the whole middle section is devoted to perpetrators who are in various programs, uh, you know, anti-violence programs. And uh, there's a lot of data that says, no, these things don't work. These things don't work. But we also don't put any resources into making these programs work, right? Like our answer is to just either put a victim in jail, and, uh, put a, sorry, put an abuser in jail and put a victim in shelter, or to just be like, well, we don't really have a solution. And I, to me, that is that is the, you know, the, the least, I mean, you're not, you're not going to get results in any program that just sort of like disappears the problem. Because we don't have a lot of programs in the U S um, like this call center in Britain that actually helps the abuser and is, is a resource just for the abusers. That's right. pretty rare, right. right? Exactly. It's, it is rare. I mean, we have, every state has some kind of abuser intervention program, but the efficacy is really varied. The state certifications are all varied. Um, And most of those people who participate in those programs come from law enforcement. So, you know, they come because their, their probation officer has referred them or it's a term of their probation in some way. And so they are still part of the criminal justice system, which is our answer to everything as, as it relates to domestic violence. I mean, there's one, there's one uh, call line helpline that we've begun in the States in Massachusetts. I think there's another one in another state somewhere, but the it's escaping me now. It might be Oregon. I can't remember. Somebody wrote to me after the article came out and said, there's like a, you know, a tiny one in their community. Um, and there are other programs and there's this like amazing program that I've wanted to look at in Israel that is essentially taking the abusers and putting them in a shelter, <laughs> mm. at, like a halfway house 
and keeping the victims in their home. And then while they're in that shelter for four months or six months, they go to work every day, but then they also take, you know, abuser intervention classes and child and help and home health or home household, home, home care classes. And I mean, I just think there's a lot of ideas out there that we could try in the States that we're just not putting money into. We already have limited resources, though, for domestic violence. Should we be spending what little we have on on the abusers rather than the victims? Um, yeah, that's that's a great question. You, and no, uh, uh, absolutely not. Okay, we and, give a time. You know, we give. Let's see. The last time we um, passed the Violence Against Women Act in the Senate was 2013, and it, the budget was 500 million dollars. Congress just earmarked another. million dollars which is just nothing it's just nothing so i would never say let's take this away from victims and and put it into you know programs for abusers but i also until we try to fund um programs that stop violence before it starts right that that, or that intervene very very early we're forever going to be playing catch up. Mm. So this would be on top of um, other problems or other programs for victims and hopefully making those more robust as well. But then on top of that, um, also doing more for the, the abusers. And how effective do you think these the these call centers are in the in the you said that um, it sounded like in a lot of these calls that they they did many of them did come to a realization um, and maybe realized that they had more power in the situation. Um, do you think that that's going to make a difference, you know, after they get off the phone? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think one of the things we have to think about is the fact that these are the, a call center, like the respect line in the UK is one tool in the toolbox. It is meant to disrupt an escalation of violence. So we know, for example, that, you know, victims are killed more often when they try to leave a relationship. Like that's a really dangerous time. It's five or six times higher their chances of being killed. So when somebody comes home, when an abuser comes home to an empty house because his or her family has fled to a shelter, very often that is an escalation, right? And that abuser will try to ramp things up. There's many, many victims who died during, you know, handoffs of, of children, right, when they're giving custody to their abuser. So this, the phone line is intended to, to, to de-escalate that situation. And that's really all it's intended for. You're not going to get someone who, like, will never be violent again. The idea is that the phone line can give them options for what to do next and, and in that moment are things like yeah and, that, in and in that moment of, of the heat of the moment that they have someone to reach out to that's not going to judge them who um it, they can be anonymous um and and somebody who can give them good advice and for that one specific moment exactly exactly it's not somebody who is colluding with them to say oh my god it's terrible what's happened to you can't believe you know he or she took your kids that's not what they do. That's not what their intention is. Their intention is to say, wait a minute, you're really, I can hear that you're really upset right now. Let's just take a step back. Let's take a little bit of a time out and figure out some next steps that you can do. Can you call your primary care doctor and talk about getting a prescription for antidepressants? Can you talk, you know, to a therapist? Can you talk, can you join one of these, um, you know, violence intervention courses? So there's a lot of different uh, options that they sort of put on the table. The responders who who are taking these calls, though, do at what point do they have to call the police on the, the person who's calling, or does that uh, when when or does that happen, or does it never yeah, happen? Yeah, it does. It does happen um, if they fear uh, someone is in danger and going to hurt themselves or hurt someone else. They do. They are required to then call the police. Um, And I don't actually know how often that happens because usually by the end of a call, the person, at least all the ones I heard, the person had not only calmed down, but when they got off the phone, they had a plan of action and steps they were going to follow in the coming days. So it gives them somewhere to focus their mind 
and their emotions rather than focusing on what they've maybe just lost temporarily, right? Your father used physical violence against you um, when you were growing up. You wrote about this in your article. What difference do you think this would have made in your life if he had had a hotline to call? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, I think about that all the time, of, co- of course, as I was writing the piece, I was thinking about this. Um, and I, I, you know, I think if somebody, if he would have had someone to call who would have respected his religion, he was, you know, he was evangelical and he was incredibly um, uh, indoctrinated and also trying to indoctrinate you know, his children. And so if he would have called someone who would have non-judgmentally said, well, here are some things that you can do, because, you know, I think about like, I tried to talk to him. I tried to talk to him like through music, right? Like through overly emotional, sentimental songs, things that I couldn't say myself. And he never kind of understood that or got that. And I feel like somebody who is a trained therapist would have looked at that and been like, this is obviously a way in which he's trying to connect with you, right? <laughs> like, like it's psychology 101. I know that now as an adult and a parent myself. And so I feel like it would have been really, really helpful because what happened in our house is that we all just got kicked out and we were all teenagers and we all just, <laughs> we just went to the four corners of the earth and had to figure out how to survive as homeless teenagers. It was, it was hard. It was really hard. Well, thank you for sharing. Rachel Louise Snyder is an author and journalist. Her New York Times opinion piece about this hotline in the UK is called I Don't Want to Hit My Children. I Don't Want to Hit Anybody. You can go check it out. Thank you so much for your time, Rachel. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm Ciara Hewlett. And I'm Julie Rose. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. It has been great having you with us today for this curated episode of the show from our archives. You know, we've been on the air every weekday since 2015, and there are so many conversations we've had during that time that are worth another listen. When we started the show back then, our goal was to dig deep, because no matter how clear-cut you think an issue is, there's always another perspective. And there's likely to come a moment while listening to Top of Mind when you think, huh, that had not occurred to me. You can tap into the full Top of Mind archive on the free BYU Radio app. And we'd love to have you connect with us on social media to let us know what you think of the show. We are at BYU Top of Mind on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.